whether you went through a personal trauma as a child or you just lived life as a child, there's always something to kind of go back to and say, it was okay for you to feel that. And it's still okay now. You're listening to Sharing Tales, the podcast which embraces and celebrates the roller coaster of life with me, Rebecca Clark. We've all got a tale or two to tell, and each week you'll be hearing from my special guest who joins me to generously share some of their personal stories. Life is full of highs and lows, and yet there's always hope. After all, we live to tell the tale. Welcome to this new episode of Sharing Tales. Today, I'm delighted to be talking to the magical Giselle LePompe-Moore. Giselle is a London-based spiritual guide, speaker, a certified meditation teacher, Reiki master teacher, a tarot reader and writer. Her mission is to share how we can each create and curate a spiritual practice so we can handle whatever life throws at us. Taking a modern approach to mysticism, Giselle supports her clients through their life experiences and changes. She helps all kinds of people from all kinds of places, from 18-month-old babies to those in their 80s. From Manchester to Bahrain, by way of India, the US, South Africa, Australia and Canada. Giselle's work has been featured in Vogue, The Evening Standard, Sheer Lux, Wonderlust, and many, many more publications. With a focus on bringing her own style of spirituality and mysticism to a mainstream audience, she regularly partners with international brands and corporate clients, including Soho House, Refinery29, The Assemblage NYC, and Estee Lauder Companies, again to name just a few. Before this, Giselle worked in the fashion and beauty industry in both London and New York for over a decade, including roles in fashion archives, museum collections, PR, product development, journalism, and as the beauty coordinator at Stylist Magazine. Even further back, her clairvoyance and claircognizance started in primary school, as did her desire to help people when she joined the St. John's Ambulance Badges at just seven years old. Giselle had her first crystal at 11 and started manifesting and doing rituals at age 15. Her spiritual practices helped her to navigate anxiety, trauma, abandonment issues and career fails. She prioritized her healing journey and had a spiritual reawakening that shifted her entire life and paved the way to what she is doing now. Giselle, hello, my love. It is so good to spend some time with you this afternoon. So exciting. The perfect way to get through a dreary Friday. (laughs) (laughs) How are you? Where are you? I'm really good. I feel like we're in lockdown 6,054, but feeling good. Um, I'm in East London and really grateful that I've been, yeah, moving through this time with my mum. and had some company to go through this with. Yeah, I mean, we're still living in such strange times. Um, As we speak, we're just at the end of January, 2021. I was on a video call with some old school friends last night and it was weird that in almost 30 years of friendship, 
only one topic really dominated our conversation. Mm. That's never happened before. As someone whose spiritual practices are an integral part of your own life, how you live, how have you been finding ways to stay grounded during this crazy time? Um, I think I've always, you know, since I was really small, used my practices as these foundations to the rest of my life. So even if my life was an absolute turmoil, I kind of always had my practices to come home to. And I think I've really put them to the test this year and, and last year because when everything else is kind of taken away or stripped back, then that's kind of all that we have are those practices that make us feel a sense of peace and joy and balance regardless. And that just really speaks to like my whole approach to spirituality is that it's not about, you know, love and light and enlightenment. It's really just about how to navigate some really tricky times. And knowing that actually when we, we tend to set all of these intentions for doing things and seeing things and experiencing them, but actually if we set intentions for inner peace and balance and joy, we usually can get them when we come back to those practices. So yeah, I feel really grateful that I've had them. It's reminding me of some of the work you and I did together last year, actually, in an event that we co-hosted around coming back to oneself and kind of using this time or seeking you know, what might this time be speaking to us on an individual level about? And I think it just almost reclaims our ability to have some kind of autonomy and control over our own lives. We've seen firsthand that we can't control anything outside of us. We can't control when COVID will end. We can't control when we might get vaccines. We can't control any of that. Mm. And it can feel disempowering, right? It can feel really hard to sit with that fact that actually I don't have as much control as I thought I did. But kind of taking that back inwards and saying, but I do have control over myself and how I respond and react. There's a lot of strength that comes with that. Yeah. It's remembering that we always have a choice. Mm. And I think, you know, we can still give ourselves permission to feel absolutely awful about what's Mm. happening. We can't (laughs) bypass that. We shouldn't bypass it. But it's still knowing that we still do have control over who we are. Mm. Well, I'm really excited. I'm so pleased that we're sharing this space together um, today. And I think we have lots to cover. So let's begin with your first chapter. And I believe we're going back to your childhood. Tell me about younger Giselle. What was she like? She was really cute. Just gonna say that. <laughs> I bet she was. <laughs> I have all of these like baby photos of me around the house. I'm just like, wow, she's so cute. <laughs> I love that girl. <laughs> yeah, I love her. She was great. Um, yeah, I was, an, I was an only child, so it was a lot of imagination time when I was growing up. I spent a lot of time with myself and processing things way ahead of my time. I was always really interested in human existence. I wanted some questions answered constantly. And I really enjoyed that reflective space of wondering how I got here. Mm. And I would always come to my mom with these crazy questions of, I wonder why my arm is like that. Like, I wonder why we all have noses and faces. I was just really interested in the world around me. And I actually think there's some sense of resilience that comes with being an only child. And I really learned that this year. When I would tell my mum that I was bored, she gave me this book, which was like 1,000 things to do if you're bored. And it was the best book I've ever read because it really taught me how to make the most of my own company. It taught me to realize that I'm enough. And that people can be these really beautiful additions to our lives and we need each other. But I was always living through this space of knowing that I was enough. And that was such a huge life lesson to learn quite early on. 
so yeah, I really loved my childhood and my friends always laugh. I was like, yeah, I didn't, I didn't want siblings. I had a great, I had a great time. <laughs> I was going to ask about that question. Did you ever feel a sense of loneliness or were you just kind of reveling in being a, a single child in your family? Yeah, I think I really enjoyed it. And I think mainly because I was so close to my mom and my grandparents and always mm. feeling that love and support. And when I did get to play with my friends, which was, you know, every single day anyway, it was like, oh, they mm. get to go home and I get to, you know, have my toys and my family to myself. And it was just like a really nice balance between knowing that I was enough, but also allowing people into that space too. Mm. It's interesting because you're making me think about my own childhood mm. and I'm not an only child, but there's a really significant gap between me and my two big sisters. And so I spent from you know, being a baby to around the age of eight, almost having four parents mm. because I had these four adults around me I didn't mind that at all mm. and I think it's only as an adult I can look back and as an outgoing person I always thought I was an extrovert but actually I realize more so now mm. particularly over this past year or so I'm an introvert and I'm quite happy <laughs> quite happy in my own company mm. yeah and I think I've really learned that this year too that there's so many ways that we can connect to people and knowing that my friends and my family are just, you know, a phone call away has been really reassuring and lovely, but also being able to be okay by being, you know, with myself and spending time learning new things about myself, which I think sometimes is hard to do when we're around people constantly. We don't really dig mm -hmm. deep into, you know, I always say there's nothing more confronting than when you have dinner outside by yourself in a restaurant and mm -hmm. you don't have a phone, you don't have a book and you have to really sit with what comes up. And it's like, yeah, what, what do I do? And what do I think when there's nobody else here? And mm. those can be the moments of our lives where we learn so much. It can be really enriching. Mm. And so did you find that you had a particularly close relationship with your mum mm. when you were growing up as yeah. a result of this? Yeah, we were really close. I had, you know, quite a turbulent relationship with my dad. So my mum was always, you know, in my house, my best friend and my confident and my biggest cheerleader. So we always had that bond and it was one that was really special to both of us. I remember really vividly when she said, when I was, I was about eight or nine, that she had to go into hospital for like a routine hysterectomy. And I didn't really know what that was. So I just assumed, you know, mm. she'll be out in, you know, a week's time and everything will be fine. And she said that herself, you know, she said that it should be very routine. I'll be back home. And I really trusted that. And I think within, you know, 12 hours of her having her operation, we just got a call that she was in ICU. She had lost like 12 pints of blood and they didn't think she was going to make it basically. And it was huge disruptive news, mm -hmm. news that I didn't mm -hmm. know how to process or to sit with. And I remember the first thing that I thought was like, well, what do I do without her? Mm -hmm. Like I didn't know what life looked like without her. So it was a huge moment to process that, especially because we were so close. And who was supporting you? you on a practical level and emotional level at that time. Yeah, I was really lucky. My grandparents came down. My dad was great during that time too. And we had some family members who came over from Trinidad as well to be there. And we just had no expectation of how long she might be in hospital, if she was going to survive. Mm. The doctors were, you know, they were very realistic with us. They said, you know, we don't expect her to to make it. I think she had maybe 12 operations during um, the three months that she ended up being in ICU for. And at every turn, they said, you know, expect the worst, you know, we're trying to save her life here, but we don't know how to to do that. And it was a lot to hear. And I remember the first time I went to see her in hospital, she just didn't look like my mom. And mm. I had to run out of the room because she had like tubes everywhere. And it was just, it just mm. wasn't her. And I had to sit with that guilt for a long time, actually, you know, 
I didn't see her for most of the time she was in hospital because I was just terrified. Right. So that was like a lot to process afterwards, like the guilt of not being able to see her or to handle it. Yeah. I mean, a nine-year-old child, that's really, really young, isn't it? To experience that level of trauma, really. Your primary caregiver, your best friend. How did you, do you remember how you did begin to process that and begin to heal, if indeed you did at, at that time? I think there was, you know, my family were just integral in reminding me that it was okay. There was mm. never any onus on me having to be okay or to feel a certain way or to go and see her. It was very much that my grandparents would take me to the hospital with them every day, but they would, you know, plant me on the swing outside or go and experiment with the hospital food in the cafeteria. Yeah. And, you know, they made sure they had activities to do. So there was never any pressure to handle it in any other way. And I think that allowing was huge. And mm-hmm. it really taught me about how important it is just to allow everything to be there and to be present. Um, that when we're going through something traumatic, we don't have to have the perfect response or reaction to that. Mm. It just seems that there's a wisdom there from your grandparents and possibly from your mother too, mm. to hold you in that way, to just hold mm. you so that you could process and go through whatever it was you were feeling. Mm. Yeah, there was a huge amount of holding and one that I'm you know, so grateful for. And I think for me, you know, some of the long-term lessons and teachings for myself was just, you know, self-compassion because I was able to, you know, look back at myself being nine years old and be able to really hold that version of myself and say, it was okay to feel that. And in turn, you know, something that we all need to do every day now is every day we move through our lives, our adult lives, I say to myself, you know, it's okay for me to feel this. It's okay for me not to know the answers. It's okay for me to feel really awful today. And there is this humanness that comes with allowing that in which I think I wouldn't have really been able to learn properly unless I had been through that. Mm. Because I'm beginning to really believe and understand that these versions, these earlier versions of ourselves, they don't disappear just because we grow older. They're part of us. They're still living with us. And you know, with some of the healing that I've done, often I end up you know, going back to these same points in time, these same triggers, um, whether it's you know myself and I was at school in particular, and really needing to show up for my 13 or 15 year old self and let her know that she's okay. And so I think it seems increasingly important for adults in particular to have an awareness Mm. of that and know that it's all right. I think there's a cultural element, isn't there? In the British, we just forget about things, forget about it, move on. That's in the past, Mm. it's done. But oftentimes it really isn't. Yeah, and you know, there's something that my, my therapist was really great about, we, we wrote, I wrote a letter to my eight-year-old self and just mm. gave what she needed to hear. And just even, you know, that exercise alone is so incredibly soothing and empowering because, yeah, I carry her around with me every single day. And, you know, she comes up in inopportune dating moments when you feel like your needs are not going to be met. <laughs> but, you know, when she's thrown her temper tantrums, it's easy to forget where she comes from. It's easy yeah, to forget yeah. that I'm somebody who went through a traumatic experience and it's being able to kind of look back on that and say everything that you felt and you went through was valid and you deserve to be here mm. and there's a really lovely sense of compassion and heart opening that comes from that practice which is something that we can all do you know whether you went through a mm. personal trauma as a child or you just lived life as a child there's always something mm-hmm. to kind of go back to and say it was okay for you to feel that and it's still okay mm. now that lived experience and it can show up in in weird ways, I was kind of smirking to myself because I remember, I don't know if you watched it, but one of the lockdown hits of, of last year was mm. Normal People. 
And I found myself immensely triggered by the early episodes of of being at school and being kind of considered the outcast or not the popular one. Yeah, as as we were just saying before, I think when you react to something, if you take a moment, you can kind of explore within oh, that's from that time in my life, although that's from when mm. that happened that's caused me to feel that way today. Mm, it's really huge. And I think also those stories and those chapters are allowed to evolve with time. So for me, a huge part of that learning was around, you know, things like I just mentioned. So like allowing, but also around strength and resilience because my mum fought her way through every single moment of that. And now, you know, there's still things that I learn about that time that make more sense as I get older. Like, it reminded me of how afraid I was of death, you know, after she came out of hospital, I was afraid of everyone dying. And I realized mm. that in some ways, the pain I felt was actually the grief of thinking that she was going to die. And it made me almost reshift the idea of death. And especially in my spiritual practices, not being afraid of it, because we go through these little deaths and rebirth cycles in our lives continuously. Mm. Like my mum is not the same person she was before she went to hospital. I wasn't the same yeah. person I was before and after that happened to me. So in a way, we both went through a death and a rebirth. It just proves that, you know, life is these moments. It's not this one big moment at the end. We go through these little cycles continuously. Mm. It seems as though from things you've said to me in the past and even from the bio that you shared, you were very spiritually aware from a very Mm. young age. Do you know where that came from? Was that encouraged in your family? So it was interesting because I didn't even realize until I started doing this work, but my great grandmother in Trinidad was um, a healer and she would help women in her village, you know, get pregnant and she would do things like cupping and energy work. Mm -hmm. And she was very both both spiritual and religious. And I grew up in the Catholic Mm -hmm. church and I questioned a lot of things and I didn't understand why somebody had all the power and the rules and I didn't. And I wanted to know how I could um, have some more of my own power and my own agency. And Mm -hmm. I think with lots of spirituality, especially when, when you're younger, you didn't ask for all of these things that just happened. And I just started my process, my journey with just having these really crazy dreams that were really scary. You know, being six years old and, you know, intuitively sensing someone was going to die is a lot to um, to feel into. And mm-hmm. luckily my family yeah. were very supportive over that. And it was great having a safe space to share what I was going through with people. But yeah, it was always a part of my life in ways that I didn't really ask for. And they just felt like they came and my practice has kind of evolved as I've evolved and grown. Mm, mm. I mentioned when um, I was going through your introduction that you first manifested or started manifesting and doing rituals at age mm. 15. How did that come to pass? I think I was like in exam season and I went to Atlanta in America to see some family and I just found all of these books on my aunt's bookshelf around, you know, mind, body, soul and, you know, the law of attraction. And I was just fascinated by it. And it just was, you know, the power that I'd always been seeking of like, oh, I can actually create something here. And I think especially, you know, as a black teenager who grew up in East London, I didn't see any stories of people who were doing that. And I couldn't necessarily Mm -hmm. feel like there was, apart from obviously hard work and education, there wasn't like a way to be or do anything different. If you can't really see it, then you don't think that is possible for you. And, you know, this way of thinking allowed me to believe that it was possible. And I was very aware even, you know, since then, and I think it's a bad rep that manifesting gets that you just sit back and wait for things. I knew since I was 15 Mm. that manifesting wasn't about sitting and waiting. It was just knowing that you were powerful enough to create something, but it required work and it required me studying for my exams. But it was something that I tried and I practiced with and honestly just gave me the strength and the faith in myself to 
revise and to be a school and to keep pushing knowing that I could achieve what I've set out to. It was a great way to begin that practice for sure. Hmm. It's really interesting that you know, like attracts like. I can't help but notice New York um, comes up in a lot of these conversations on, on this podcast. And I love New York. It has a big piece of, of my heart. And so a, a big chapter of your life and one that we'll turn to next is around this opportunity that you manifested to move to New York. What's the story around that? Yeah, I think, you know, everyone has a soft spot for New York in their hearts. I mean, if you ever love it or you hate it. <laughs> exactly, exactly. I originally watched all of these like old Hollywood films like Breakfast at Tiffany's and I used to watch Sex in the City and I just fell in love with the idea of being there. And I went on some holidays and some vacations to, to visit some family and that I had over there. And I was just like, yeah, this is where I want to be. And I'm going to make it happen. And I had no business going to New York. I was like 21. I had never <laughs> left home before. I had no intentions of what I was going to do there. I had no plans. And I just said, that's where I'm going to be. And I decided I would like to do like a master's degree in fashion history, as I really love the academic side of um, both fashion and beauty. So I went there, I did my research, I found a school I wanted to go to. And I just remember coming back to like to London. I said to my mom, I'm moving to New York next year. And I knew how much this, the fees were to go to New York University. I did not have those fees. Mm. And mm -hmm. I had no concept of how I'd make it happen. And I remember I created like a Tumblr page, you know, good old, good old Tumblr. And <laughs> I just would post New York pictures constantly. I would write New York quotes. I had a vision board with the exact building I wanted to, to live in which again was like a private apartment I could not afford. I wrote down I wanted to go to this particular school. I just had so much faith and trust that it would happen. Well, you had a lot of detail as well. Like you'd done yeah. the research. Like very specific research. And you know, I, of course I did my end of it by, I applied for the schools. I worked hard to get into the schools. I did all of those kind of things. And somehow I made it all happen. I got into the schools I wanted to go to. I actually got an um, apartment in the building that I put on my my board. What, what it, neighborhood you know, was this building in? In East Village, Manhattan. <laughs> and so I think it was maybe like, if you've got one outright, it would be like $4,000 a month, uh -huh. which I did not have. And we managed to find on Craigslist, like a sublease. Uh -huh. And it was there for like maybe $1,000 a month. Wow. And just like the entire trip was, and you know, me moving there was all things I just didn't think were possible. And they were, yeah. and I really believed in it. And it was a huge turning point moment for me in realizing, oh, I can create like some pretty wild things. Mm. Your power. Yeah, for sure. Hmm. So you made your dream come true. You're what, 22 at this point, studying, living in New York. Did all your dreams come true? No, absolutely not. <laughs> and it was arguably some of the hardest years of my life, also the best years of my life, because I just learned incredible amounts about myself. There is that saying, you know, wherever you go, there you'll be. And boy, is that true. You know, the part of me that wanted to be there wasn't necessarily happy. Mm. I was anxious. I had anxiety attacks all the time when I was in London. And I just took that version of me to New York with me. And we believe that places and people can fix us or change us. You know, we say, 
I'll be happy when I get to New York. I'll be happy when I get this dream job. And I was still the same person. And I had, you know, my anxiety got really bad when I was there. And I would say it's the best time of my life because that's when my anxiety was kind of recognized. I went to a doctor and I had lots of physical symptoms. And in the UK, they said it was a parasite. And in New York, they said, no, you've got anxiety. Right. And I went to a therapist and she's the one who taught me how to meditate. Mm-hmm. And that was absolutely life-changing. I did breathing meditations every single day. My anxiety attacks stopped. And that's the moment when I guess my life changed because I realized how intrinsically linked body and mind are. Because my symptoms were so physical and doing just some simple breath work and affirmations was able to stop that in its tracks, um, which is the reason why I became a meditation teacher. I just knew how powerful it was to, to integrate mind and body. So I was forever grateful for, you know, for moving there and to learn that about myself and to, to reconcile it. So how long did you stay in New York in the end? So I was there for about a few years and I, I left and then I went back because again, I didn't learn my lesson around wherever you go, there you'll be. And the second time was actually even worse than the first time because yeah, I was in a pretty toxic relationship and I just wanted to be back there. I wanted to have that life again. And when I got there, things just went really downhill. And again, I had to learn both the value of trusting that what's inside is more important than what's outside. And if I can work on myself and heal myself, then I can go and do anything. But unless that happens, I will take that version of me who wasn't in her worth and who was very anxious and who had phobias and all those kinds of things. I'll just take that wherever I go. Mm. So the work was for me to, yeah, just to come home and to realize that actually all of this stuff happens from within. It can't be given to me by anything outside of me. And was the start of that transformation, was it quite clear? Like, I, I need to go back to the UK. I need to change some major things in my life. I mean, how did that transition kind of play out? I think it was really just, there was nothing wrong with London. I made London seem to be the absolute <laughs> devil in my mind. I remember there was... There was yeah, they remember there was one day when I came back from New York and I looked at the Oyster card and I was just furious at it. I was like, why are the Oyster cards this shape? In New York, they're not that shape. And just, you know, all of these things that I've, you know, I've lived in London, I was born here like my entire life. And all of a sudden I just had this, I just didn't want to be here. And it was, you know, just coming back home and being like, this is my home and this is a space for me to heal mm. and to go through what I've experienced. It was a space for me to prioritize myself, to look at those inner healing pieces and knowing that actually so much of those spiritual practices that I had growing up, they deserved a place again in my life. It's interesting how much emphasis we can put on place of this kind of idea. And I've done this in exactly the same, like London's not hating it, but mm, London isn't where I want to be. New York is where I want to be. I was saying to somebody recently, New York's where I sparkle and shine. (laughs) (laughs) The sparkle. You want to almost blame something externally, don't you? Rather than you show up wherever it might be and exactly as you said, mm-hmm. wherever you go there, you, there you'll be. Mm-hmm. How did you make your peace with London? Because like you said, you were born and grew up here. Mm-hmm. How did you heal that relationship? I think it was knowing that it was not London that I had the issue with. It was myself. And I had to really sit with and investigate what was I seeking in New York. And it was anything from a sense of freedom to, you know, the elusive sparkle. Mm. And I was like, why can't I have freedom and the elusive sparkle in London? And I could. Mm. And it was being able to kind of reclaim that and to work out who do I want to be and how do I want to move through the world? And how do I make that happen 
if I am in my room by myself with no job and no fancy city around me, how do I make that happen? And it was from a process of physical, mental, emotional, and spiritual growth. Mm -hmm. It was about me learning more about myself, understanding who I was at that age. And yeah, what I'd been through, it was was owning that I'd been through some traumatic experiences Mm -hmm. and that I had to sit with those and integrate them and move past them. And that could happen in any city in the world. Mm-hmm. And until I had got that and received it, things would just keep being the same. And yeah, like clockwork, I fell in love with London again. Our relationship is going strong to this day. <laughs> We're doing well. It is the process of me unlearning all the little stories I told myself. And so during this period of reflection, healing, mm-hmm. self-examination, at what point did you realize hang on, th- there's more to it than just me and my healing. Like I've, I've actually got some gifts to, to share around this. When did you become aware of that? Yeah, I think when I came back from New York and I was lucky to get some really great jobs in like magazines and in other areas, there was just still something when I did those jobs that felt like this wasn't, this is not what I'm here to do. Something would always go wrong. And I think it was still some of the remnants of that idea of, when I get a dream job and everything will fall into place and I'll be really happy and kind of seeing that that wasn't possible. And I got to a point in my career when I just thought, I just don't think the next job is going to be it. And what do I do with that? Mm. I just don't believe that my happiness can be found in a job because it's outside of me. Mm. And when I did take a step back and I was looking to my practices, because my practices were the only things that helped me through the absolute horrors that you experience working in fashion and beauty. They helped me through it. You know, they really did. They helped me through the mental health pieces that I worked through, the pressure, the toxic environments. And again, I came back to my practice of helped me through everything my entire life. Mm. So there's something more here than just me going through them. There's something deeper. I did my meditation teacher training, just like as a, you know, a PS just for myself mm. to learn more. And, you know, during that course, I was like, I want to spread this. I want to help people who do have really hectic lives and who've been through the lives that I've been through and help to see that there can be an easier way to navigate it. Mm. So how did you start? I think the first thing I did was just, again, you know, some introspection around the reasons why I wanted to do it. Lots of practitioners, you always say it's not something that you choose if you kind of get a call Mm. to do it. It's not work that's on, you know, the careers list at school. Like you find your way into it and it's usually because you go through some pretty rough moments and there has to be another way. So I started with introspection, working out how do I feel I can be of service and trusting that actually, yes, it'll be hard to start a business, but I trust in spirit mm. and that's what got me through. And I had a very spacious mindset with it all. I knew I had to have some sacrifices like living at home and not going out as much and starting all over again at you know 27 or something Mm. but i just trusted that it was going to be in my highest and greatest good so i just kept going and what does your practice look like now what does your business look like i think it's always interesting you know when you first start something you expect how you start it will be how it will continue And I've always had a sense of non-attachment with what I do. And non-attachment doesn't mean that I am not attached to my business and what I offer. It's more so that I know that my purpose, I believe so, is in helping and being of service. So I'm very open to how that can evolve and shift. 
So if I do, for example, a workshop one year and it doesn't feel good the next year, then I'm happy to release it. Mm-hmm. As long as I'm being of service, I don't really care like how I choose to do that. So the sessions I offer now were different to how they looked in the beginning. I had a really big resistance to offering tarot when I first started because I just had so many clients who'd been through some awful readings of like, you know, fortune mm-hmm. predictions and you're going to meet this guy on a 36 bus. I'm like, that's just not going to happen. And I had a huge resistance, you know, to stepping into that. Yeah. And over over the years, I realized that I read in such a different way and that way could really serve people. So there has been so many shifts, but it's, you know, the premise is the same, like just being of service and space holding. I think it's the tarot thing in particular is interesting because it does have a bit of a bad rep. Mm-hmm. And I certainly, back in around 2012, 2013, I went to see, I can't remember what they're called, but the resident tarot readers at Selfridges. Oh, yes. They absolutely scared me to death. They were telling me all kinds of things. There's a real irresponsibility, isn't there, with people who are behaving in that way. But I know you and I have spoken just recently about meeting people where they are, speaking people's language. And I mentioned before around your sense of modern mysticism, because I I definitely can see myself. There's a real shift. There's a real interest. There's more of a curiosity around these practices in the mainstream in a way that there simply wasn't before. Absolutely. And I think it is all about, you know, integrity and also how we make these concepts accessible. And, you know, if I'm in a room full of practitioners, we do speak in our own language about, you know, higher consciousness and realms and spirit guides. But if I'm speaking to my clients or people around me, that's not how I speak Mm. because there's no point me, I don't want to do this work for myself. I don't need to hear my own voice. I don't need to hear my flowery language. I want to help people. And that means making spirituality accessible, understandable. It means that I'm not trying to scare people in a tarot reading because how does that serve me or them? And I've never understood, you know, when we have people leave a session, like being terrified, it's like, who does that serve? Mm. It doesn't help anyone. It just means that person has to carry extra weight they didn't ask to carry. So I think accessibility is really huge. I think it's about modernizing and translating very heavy concepts so people actually do them. I want to be able to, you know, finish work every day knowing that people understood what I've said. And that's why I do it. And I think in that sense, as with everything is evolving isn't it as you go along because you're of course naturally continuing to grow and transform yourself and one of the other things I wanted to ask you about was your kind of recent rebranding for want of a Mm. a different word and how you've Mm. almost reclaimed your name could we talk a bit about that yeah of course I think you know I started my business not having known anything about business and I was just like well you have to have a name and it has to be like a very shiny name (laughs) and it, it took me ages to find the name for my business and it was something that was really blessed to come through twice actually during my Reiki attunement and during a meditation. And it came through as a very powerful message from spirit. That's what I should call my business. So it was called Project Arjuna, which is the Sanskrit for your third eye chakra. Mm. And that chakra is also do with intuition and insight and perception. And that is my goal for all of my, my sessions is to kind of get back in touch with our inner knowing is to return back to yourself. And that's, you know, the birthplace of that. And I think, you know, over time, I realized that I am my brand and I'm the person who shows up to do the services and the sessions and the workshops and the talks. And there was really a lot of energetic resonance in 
saying our names when we do practice like for example like the akashic records if you do an akashic record session you always say the person's legal name that's how spirit kind of knows us in this lifetime mm -hmm. and i think that's something really beautiful about that and i've always loved my name i feel like i have a great name i'm really blessed with the you name you have an I amazing have. name <laughs> yeah and it was really about you know stepping into that unapologetically and knowing that yeah my brand is who i am and i give my heart mind body and soul to my clients and what I do. And my name is just, you know, the embodiment of that. I completely agree. And I think there has been a shift because when I set up my communications consultancy back in 2012, I went through exactly the same process. What's it going to be called? It needs to be something abstract and have a brand story behind it. And so for years, and to some extent still now, you know, it was called Beautiful Soup. But in the past year, I was really thinking about I'm the person and that's just one expression of me and some of the work that I offer to the world. And so I did a similar thing where my website is now my name and I'm increasingly, I think we're starting to see that across different industries and sectors that it's okay for it to, to kind of be about you, the light that you're shining in the world in whatever way that might be, rather than having to think up some kind of fancy story for a, an, another name that's more slightly unrelated to you. And I think it is, you know, the truest expression of vulnerability mm -hmm. and openness is there's nowhere to hide. You know, you can't not show your face. You can't not tell your story and you have to be seen and you have to show up. There's nothing to hide behind. You know, we see most of the brands that we engage in in our lives are nameless, faceless brands, mm. and we never know who's behind it. And there can be, for a lot of people, a lot of power in that and not being seen. But I think for so many of us as individual practitioners and workers, it's so powerful just to step back and say, yeah, this is who I am. This is all that I have to give. And I will continue to show up with integrity and my heart will continue to be open. And my name is a great expression of that. Yeah. And I do think that increasingly audiences, if you will, are looking for greater connection. We're seeing it, you know, they are holding the big brands accountable in terms of the impact they're having on the world. It's not enough anymore to just kind of deliver your product or service, as it were. You need to be doing it in an ethical way, a sustainable way, and we want to make sure that you mean it. And then on a smaller brand level, I think people do want to see, are, are you relatable? Well, how can I help you? You know, I, I want to show mm. up and support small businesses. Who is that person that I'm helping? Mm. I only think we'll see more of that. And there's something, you know, really beautiful about that approach. It's a, a level of consciousness that I think is evolving too in mm. communities. Yeah. And I do think that, especially with, you know, solo practitioners or mm. workers, I think the same standards should apply. It is a lot of responsibility to hold space for someone. And especially, you know, not all of the modalities are um, regulated. Mm -hmm. Not everyone has a training, which is not a problem, but there's not really, you know, if for example, you're going to the doctors, you know what they've been through to be there. Yeah. And we don't really have the same thing. So I think it does come with a huge level of responsibility. And I think it's our right to make sure that our client knows how much reverence we treat this work with, that it feels like a safe space, that no one leaves my sessions with, I can't believe she said that, you know, this bad thing's going to happen mm. to me. And there's a huge amount of trust that happens. And I think, you know, the more that we can be seen and show up allows there to be this trust. And it's one that I've never taken for granted. I know how incredibly courageous and brave it is to allow people in to see that side of you. Mm. 
And whenever my clients tell me, you know, even just how their day has been, it's always the most humbling moment that they've trusted me enough with that information. So I do think that, you know, the more that we can show up and share who we are with people, the more that we can allow them to come in. The deeper those connections can be, the more real they can be. I saw this picture this week around kind of customer journey, if you will, but I think it relates to anything like this. The first step is to like someone. The second step is to trust them. And when you build on that trust, you move to a a space of love and real connection. And that really stayed with me. Yeah, I think that's so powerful. And it's the reason why I love what I do is, you know, my work is nothing without my clients who I speak to every day and who trust me and I trust them in return. And there's so much love there. And I think for me, it has been the biggest teacher in understanding how incredibly connected we all are. Mm -hmm. And it's something that is so easy to forget, but people are incredible. And, you know, we've been through, you know, the last maybe five years of being in a period of absolute mayhem and division. Mm -hmm. And for me to connect with people who I've never met before every single day and to be instantly connected. And I've almost said to them, I'm just going to spend the next hour focused on you. Mm. And I'm going to give you everything that I have. And if only the world works like that in every area, because we'll probably be in such a more loving and empathetic situation. You were the person who said last year, and it really stayed with me, we're all the answer to each other's prayers. And there's that sense, which I think we can often forget that whatever it is we might want or need in our lives, there's always a person behind it, whether it's Mm. someone approving a mortgage or Mm. somebody who's responsible for a a hiring decision, whatever it is that we want or need, there is an individual person with a real life and loves and stresses. And I think when you start to view the world or start to remember that just a little bit, it can completely shift your perspective on what it is we're all doing here. Yeah, I always say that life is so carefully orchestrated and choreographed in ways that we can't even imagine. And I always liken them to, you know, nature documentaries and we see some crazy stuff like, you know, there's birds that migrate at a specific time every single year. There's animals that will hibernate at the same time every year. And if they don't do that, then the whole ecosystem gets thrown off. Mm. In the same ways that the things that we want and we desire, it's cause and effect. Like your life will affect someone's life probably in South Africa right now. The decisions that you make, you having the courage to do this podcast will enable somebody who needs desperately to hear the words that you're about to tell them. Someone that you probably will never even know about. Everything has a knock-on effect. And I think it is such huge permission for us all to then step into whatever our desires are because someone out there is asking for it. Yeah. It's like when you scroll or turn the page or even when we were looking to, um, we wanted to move into this house and we weren't Mm -hmm. sure if we'd be able to. And one holiday at the time, last summer an advert came on, I think it was a prime location. And the crouch end where I live postcode was what was typed in to this TV advert. It was such a a wink and a moment of, it's gonna happen. I love the wonder of that. Mm. Second of when you turn on the radio, people use that example a lot. And that song comes on, or that message Mm. comes through. And uh, I always see it as gentle or really blatant encouragement Mm. to keep doing what you're doing or going after what you want. Mm. I think, you know, we always believe that what we have to share is therefore not good enough, right? So if you're thinking about the person who created that 
advert, mm. they probably thought, well, my job's not that special, but just them having the idea to put that exact postcode in changed your life. Mm. And you obviously don't know that person to tell them, thank you. They'll never know. Yeah. But I think it proves that even on the smallest levels to the grandest levels, like you don't have to be Oprah to change someone's <laughs> life. Like you just have to show up for yourself yeah. in what you do and trust in your ideas knowing that somebody out there is waiting for them and ready to receive them. Yeah. And exactly as you said, it's not direct reciprocation and that's okay. In fact, that's what's so special about it. I think that none of us Mm. will ever know who or when we're making our biggest impacts. Mm. And I think it's been able to have that sense of self-validation of, I don't even need to thank you. Mm. I don't even need to understand how this had an impact, but I just know and trust fully that I did my best today to show up. Mm-hmm. Well, just though we're coming to the end of our conversation, I always ask my guests this question and you haven't told me in advance. So I'm intrigued to hear what you're going to say. Mm-hmm. What is your mantra for modern living? There's actually a quote that I've you know carried with me and I think it was actually the spark, the seed of so much of my spiritual journey. It's by a Jesuit priest and it's, his name is Pierre Telhard de Chardin. And he said, we are not human beings having a spiritual experience. We are spiritual beings having a human experience. Mm. And for me, that just sums up everything in a very succinct nutshell that, you know, we spend so much time tethered to our identities and our humanness when actually underneath that we and above that we are these spiritual beings. So spirituality is not something for us to understand or to make sense of. We are spiritual beings full stop. It's just who we are. Mm. It's that sense of if only we could really grasp just how powerful and magical each of us are. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. I think it really speaks to our beauty and our wonder and how incredible life is and how incredible we are even in the moments where it feels like it's not. Mm. Well, thank you, Giselle. Thank you for speaking with me this afternoon. I've absolutely loved it. Thank you for the work that you are doing. I think you're incredible. I wish you only the best for everything that's to come. You're doing really important, special work. Thank you so much, Becky. It was such a great conversation. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Sharing Tales. Make sure to visit our website, www.rebeccaclark.co.uk forward slash sharing tales, where you can subscribe to make sure you never miss an episode. While there, if you've enjoyed what you've heard, We'd really appreciate a review and a rating to help other people find this show. If you'd like to tell your friends and family, that would be amazing too. Big thanks to our sound producer and editor, the wonderful Erin Maguire at Beyongolia Productions. Be sure to tune in next Monday for a new episode. Bye-bye for now.